0: What's going on? It's time for another episode of Too Hard for the Radio, transmitting from the future free state of greater Idaho. I am the one Arm madman. And with me today, we've got ourselves a, a, a real-life brain surgeon. We've got Gary on, on the line. How are we doing today, Gary? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Man, so I thought a lot about like how to start this because I wanted to like get into some serious stuff and some fun stuff, but... There's always an interesting way to start these things out. So I figured I'd kind of start with myself here and give you a little bit of like a, I don't know, a minor case study for a second. So I, uh, I guess it was eight years ago. Now I was electrocuted by 14,400 volts while I was working on power lines. I had electricity go through my right hand across my body and to the left. So as I'm dealing with like workers comp and doctors and all this stuff, like people around me start going, your memory is like bad, bad. And I'm a guy who like can remember song lyrics from, you know, stuff 20 years ago. And then all of a sudden people are telling me I have a bad memory. I'm like, what the hell's going on? So we start digging in and like looking into brain injuries and start talking to the doctors. And they say to me, they go, well, here's the deal. You haven't had a brain scan since you were like 15. So when you got hurt, we could do a scan now, but it's not really going to show us anything. So essentially, you're fine. <laughs> so what is what is electricity like that do to a human brain?
1: Um, you gotta forgive me. All of a sudden, I there my my, uh, my uh, sight went down for a second. Oh, I'm so, sorry.
0: Uh, I was just rambling about a brain injury no, for I, like ten minutes.
1: I, 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 I heard that part, and then I uh, all of a sudden, my screen went blank, so uh, forgive me for that. Um, well, you know, certainly not uh, something that we see a lot of, uh, to be quite honest. Most
0: people die uh, from that, which is probably uh, the reason. I have to imagine.
1: <laughs> and, you know, of course, I, I guess every so often you see somebody who's been uh, struck by lightning or, uh, you know, close to a tree. Uh, I would imagine in a situation like that, there is the uh, opportunity for real uh, widespread uh, brain cell injury, Um, you know, I mean, just like everywhere else in your body with that much electricity through. So I I would think, you know... (laughs) brain injuries come in many different sizes and forms if you will sometimes it's very localized you know to an area sure uh and other other times it's spread throughout the brain were you in coma
0: no i wasn't so i i still don't know what happened exactly so when i i i remember climbing the pole and i looked over at my buddy to see what he was doing. Cause it's always a race in line work. You're like going for time and you want to be better than the guy next to you. So you can <laughs> make more money and be the boss essentially. And I, so I look over and then I don't remember anything after that for a couple of minutes. And I wake up looking at the sky and I go, Oh man, I must've fell. And I start like going to get myself off the ground and there's nothing there. And real quick, like I start going into pain and things start, you know, and I figure it out real quick, but I I still don't know what happened. It was a weird, it was a really weird thing because like I've knocked myself out on a dirt bike multiple times. I've knocked myself out in basketball before. Like, I kind of know what that feels like. And this was just so much different. Like, I feel like I could have been gone. For a million years. If you told me, oh yeah, you were gone for a million years, I'd be like, yeah, that seems about right. Like it just didn't seem like something where I I immediately woke back up like I actually did. So it, it was a weird a weird situation.
1: I bet, I, I you know, certainly understandable if uh, there are some long term effects. I think, I frankly, I think it would be interesting still to see uh, an image of the brain. I mean, you would you'd potentially get some idea if there's diffuse in- injury or whereabouts and stuff. I-, I suppose, you know, in the end, there's not much you're going to do about it. So- it. Yeah.
0: And and also, like, in in a situation like that, people don't want the answers. Like, I want the answers, but the people paying the bills definitely don't want the answers because when they <laughs> yeah, get the answers, the bill goes up a lot. You know what was yeah. really weird is, like, you were saying you don't get many injuries like this. And like trying to find experts is, is really hard in a situation like this sure. because everybody dies who comes in contact with that much energy for the most part. I found one woman who was like um, – she was an MD, and she was an expert on lightning strikes, but she had retired, and she sent me an email. She was like, the best guy in the world is this guy here, and she sends me his, his LinkedIn bio, and he was an electrical engineer – and I go, huh, wait wait a minute, I I think we're, like, have our wires crossed here. This guy's an engineer, I'm looking for a doctor, and she's like, no, no, no. Like, doctors don't really look into this at all. Like, we need an engineer so he can actually, like, understand the electricity. And, of course, like, he's booked out for 10 years because he's the only, like, expert in the world that has to deal with mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I never really got any great experts on my case, but, you
1: know. You know, with the in all seriousness, with the uh, memory... Uh, complaints or concerns, there's certainly uh, batteries of what we call neuropsychological testing that can be done just to, to get a baseline of where you are and make sure that it's holding stable.
0: Yeah. And that's probably something I should look into. The weird thing is, is I don't notice it. Like to me, I feel like I'm completely fine. Like everything is. But like people around me will be like, no, I told you that two days ago. Like you just asked me that two days ago and I already told you. It's like, oh boy, well, maybe something is going of course I on. I get that all the
1: time, but that, right, that, right? That, that's and my for, age. Now.
0: For someone like me, it's it's a little bit nerve wracking because you're like, man, is it just like normal wear and tear on the body and the mind or is it something crazy? My my grandmother right now is going through Alzheimer's, which is very sad. And um, my my podcast host that we do a, a weekly show, we were talking about it one day and and he goes, dude someday you're just going to wake up and look in the mirror and go, wait a what the hell happened?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine.
0: Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get into brain surgery? It's, not, I mean, I think you're the, the first brain surgeon I've ever talked to. Like there's, you know, this is a very niche field. And how did you get into it? Where'd you work? How'd it go?
1: Well, I'm great. Uh, I do tell the story somewhat frequently because it's, I, I try to warn uh, the med students and pre-meds or at least to to give them a uh, you know, a little bit of advice on <laughs> on their future choices. But when a lot of people when they're in med school, I think go through multiple specialties that they think they're going to become because you know you just get exposed to things kind of serially and one thing looks good or another thing appeals to you. So I went through multiple, Uh, multiple runs of what I was going to be, but eventually settled on becoming a cardiothoracic surgeon, a heart surgeon, and uh, was all set up for that. But uh, when I was in my last month of medical school, I saw my first brain operation, and I just had my jaw dropped, and I was just like, oh, my God, I have got to do that. Uh, It was just like, I don't know, an epiphany or something. I was just like, that is what I have to do. Uh, Which meant I had to do a lot of rearranging, a lot of changing uh, horses in midstream. And uh, I knew really nothing about what I was getting myself into. Not, Not a thing. And uh so it was kind of stupid. And that's that's what I tell the uh the med students is say, you know, I I think it's real good to follow your heart because that's what I did and it worked out really well. But I would advise you research it a little more than I did, which is just kind of just leaping in both feet and not really understanding. What was all involved? What was involved is, you know, kind of getting beaten to death for many years. Oh, <laughs> and then I can imagine a, a career where pretty much it beats you to death as well. But uh, you know, it, it, I can't imagine doing anything else. Now it was, it was a fantastic ride, uh, certainly full of thrills and chills.
0: Well, when something inspires you, it's it's kind of hard to you know, be talked down off the ledge. Yeah. Or something. You know what I mean? Like I was a motocross guy and it's an inspiring thing to do. Like you're, you're capable of doing something that 99% of the people on this planet like physically couldn't do or just never would. And it, it's yeah, an I'm empowering feeling. And I can imagine that's yeah. got to be the same with, with brain surgery. You're doing something that very few people in the world can or would consider doing. And it's got to be an empowering feeling to to get inside of somebody and and really tinker with their their computer, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's definitely an awesome thing. It uh, is very humbling. Let me put it that way. I, uh, I I know there's a lot of people in in the medical world and probably outside of the medical world that think neurosurgeons are egomaniacs. But the reality is uh, we are humbled all the time because, well, for one thing, the results are not necessarily great. It's very Mm -hmm. easy to injure somebody. It's very hard to stop some of the terrible things that happen. Say, you know, a terrible head injury from motocross or from electrocution or from whatever else. There are certain things that you might be able to fix and there are many things that you can't. So we are forever being presented with, really bad outcomes. We call them bad outcomes. That's a euphemism for somebody being paralyzed or in coma or dying. And uh, you know, you, you, even even if you are certain that you did nothing wrong, you still beat yourself up about it. What could I have done differently? What could I have done differently? So uh, your ego absolutely takes a daily beating in, in, the, uh, in the field. But it's an amazing field when you're able to help people who are who are really, really, you know, in trouble and you're pulling them back. And as you say, you know, just or, you know, just from my experience, just just opening the head and looking at the brain is an awesome experience.
0: Yeah. um, Like I used to do that stuff when I was a bartender. You know, I get home from bartending and be like, oh, this woman pissed me off or I did yeah. a bad job and I wrecked these people's night, you know, and they're on vacation. And I, I would like, you know, stew in that stuff. So I can't imagine like doing a job like that where you're, like I said, you're messing with somebody's computer. It's also has to be like very humbling because we we know so so little about the brain in general. Like, you know, you're you're acute, like I can do these things. But, like, as far as the inner workings and, and the wet work, like, we know so little about it. It's almost like getting a puzzle with no picture on it and just like, here, put it together and do it right. Otherwise, this An person's I- going to have a scrambled computer.
1: <laughs> An Ikea couch, right? Yeah. It's- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it, uh, I think uh, we are given the benefit of the doubt where, you know, we're often thrown in there with rocket scientists or, I don't know, nuclear physicists. We're supposed to be so bright, uh, but I think we're given a big buy there just because of how awesome the the organ is that we work on. Uh, obviously, the the brain is, is kind of miraculous in all the things that it does. Uh, and therefore, just because we work around it, I think people give us this a lot of accolades. Um, but it, it is crazy complicated. It can shock you and surprise you at at any time. Uh, and as you say, we're just scratching the surface of really understanding it.
0: Yeah. I call, I call the human brain, the most valuable resource in the known universe. And I think that's probably a a true statement. Um, so I've since I got hurt, I um, I started looking into into prosthetics right away. As soon as I knew like the hands gone, I got to look into prosthetics. And I had a guy come into my hospital room and go, "You know what? You're just gonna want a hook. These these hands they suck. They end up in people's closets and they just don't use them. And that's basically it. Like just get a hook. Get yourself a good hook." And I, of course, like most amputees, did did not want to hear that at all. So it didn't even go in one ear out the other. It was like ears closed. I'm not listening to you. I know better than this guy who's been an amputee for 10 years. Let me just figure it out. I'll find the good one, you know? And uh, I, I start looking into it and I and after a little while, I'm like, man, this guy's right. These things do suck. And my conclusion was is that they're not even trying to make new prosthetics anymore they were able to use these EMG prosthetics they've they figured these things out in the late 80s early 90s and they've been refining those but they're not trying anything different yet and i think that's because you have to go into the brain in order to get that direct connection i have seen darpa do a couple of projects where they've like mm-hmm. used brain chips to like map other people's brains and then use algorithms with a computer but again like DARPA's been making these really crazy hands since the early 2000s, and they have—they still haven't made it to the market. So, what do you think about brain chips?
1: Yeah, I—I I, I mean, I think that is coming. I think there is a huge amount of electronic uh, brain interface or brain computer interface or brain computer slash robotics interface which is uh on the horizon the uh and i i started in the army and there are friends of mine who were working in darpa on this stuff uh and you know these things don't happen overnight so uh it doesn't surprise me that that uh it will take some time but the the technology, just the computer technology, the robotics, it's really coming on fast. And frankly, the the brain interface link is is not uh, probably the uh, the thing that's slowing things down. It's it's probably more on the computer and robotics end of things because we're seeing that you know tying into the brain is not as hard as we may think why is that because the brain seems to be able to to teach itself how to connect up when when we go ahead and that's do it that's
0: so interesting
1: yeah it's fascinating and uh and so i i think that's very much coming i i would not be surprised if in the not too distant future it's not even going to take a Internal interface, meaning you have to open up the yeah. head somehow and stick electrodes in. Some sort of I hat or something. I would be surprised if you wore a, some sort of cap. Yeah. And because because we're getting better and better and more precise at, at, at you know reading through basically EEGs, where you know the, through AI and all that they're able to kind of, I don't know if you saw there was an article at that hit the lay press recently about. Being able to uh, reproduce at least to some degree a Pink Floyd song, Ooh. you know, just through EEG really? uh, recordings of somebody who listened to the Pink Floyd song. Anyway, so I, I, man, I think I think we're we're sitting close to a real boom in that connection between brain activity and robotics uh and prosthetic robotics and that sort of thing so i'd be pretty optimistic frankly
0: cool yeah i heard elon musk say on joe rogan a couple years ago this was very interesting he he said like imagine that your brain is a factory and right now with eeg it's like taking a stethoscope and putting it on the wall of the factory and listening for the noises going on inside and then trying to draw a blueprint based on the noises that you're hearing And once he's able to go in, now he's going to be able to map the entire factory. Every machine, every part will map it out. And then you can go outside the factory and go, oh, I know exactly what that sound is. It's doing this and that. So that's what I'm I'm big on the hat. Like as far as like transhumanism goes, like. I like to parse it out in two ways. Like there's proactive and reactive. Somebody like me would be reactive. If I get something placed into my brain and maybe a permanent hand mounted to me, that's a reaction to an injury. I get more scared in the proactive where, uh, you know, a healthy person like you goes, you know what? If if I had a, mi- a microscope in my eye. Then I could do way better brain surgery. So let's get this computer chip. We'll we'll do bionic eyes. And so then I start worrying about the control aspects where you've got somebody like Elon Musk has a has a computer chip in your head. And however you feel about Elon Musk, he's one of the richest people in the world. And who knows what he does behind closed doors? I'm nervous <laughs> about him being inside my head. How does that how does that fit with you?
1: Yeah, I think uh this new era that we're heading into uh, with this, this collision, if you will, um, of, of, of that connection, that, uh, that brain slash electronic or computer connection, along with what's happening. I mean, we don't even need that. I mean, the whole AI uh, uh, can take us into a lot of different uh, directions. And boy, I, it's one of those deals where y- you hope that somebody like Elon Musk has the man- beneficence of uh, his fellow human beings uh, first and foremost in his mind. But even if he does, the genie starts coming out of the bottle, right? We can't stuff the technology back in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the negative side of all this level of control and of the potential of autonomously thinking uh computers uh yeah it's kind of scary stuff when when you start digging into it
0: it it does get a little gnarly like you start reading into it and you go man and and a lot of the stuff that like a lot of these rich people write themselves is very creepy like there's this guy named um you you've all know harari and he says that in the next like 20 30 years you know computers and AI and tech is going to be so good that we're just going to have a bunch of, he calls them useless eaters. And we're going to have to keep these people. He says, what does he say? We're going to have to keep them entertained with computer games. Otherwise they're going to come for us with pitchforks guys like that. Really, really make me nervous. Um, all right, let's, let's go into that both by the way. Right, right. It's just (laughs) so creepy when you, when, because like technologically that, Sounds about right. And whether he's like a proponent of that, or he's just like, this is the reality. It's, it's a really creepy, creepy thing. All right. So, uh, you've done another, I I really enjoy this. So one of the, one of my favorite podcasts I've done was this guy, um, guy Morris. He, um, he found some sort of NSA bought AI type of thing had escaped from the NSA back in like the nineties. And he went and wrote this, this really great psychological thriller concerning this AI, like what could have happened, you know? And I, I feel like your, your book's kind of in that same vein. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your books.
1: Well, the the book is far more uh, uh, personal than that. I think it's a, Oh, uh, I'm sorry.
0: I just meant like he used ex- a, a personal experience to create a, a great novel. That's sorry.
1: Well, thank you. And uh, so the book itself, well, I wanted to really kind of give a eyes wide open picture of that neurosurgical world, um, uh, the world of modern neurosurgery on many levels, you know, one is just to understand what the heck is going on there behind the swinging doors in the OR. But also, how do people end up there, and what happens to them, and kind of the stories behind uh, behind their lives and their families' lives, and what they go through. Uh, and so, originally, I was you know, it was going to be nonfiction. That's all you do in medicine is yeah. write a lot of nonfiction. Um, but that can get boring. It can be like book reports. And sure, uh, I wanted to. I really wanted to kind of get people to feel what it was like, frankly, to be in my shoes. Um, to be there at the head of a table, having a brain bleeding and it's not stopping when you want it to stop yeah. and what do you do and who do you pray to when, and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. And, uh, and that's why I decided eventually to go into fiction and I played with various different ideas. Originally it was going to be that people were bumping off, uh, politicians through, uh, Causing aneurysms in their brain with a poison, but and and that may have been, very, you know, uh, very uh, contemporary for sure, but I couldn't make it work anyway. I, I I came around to this idea, uh, that in my world, in the brain surgery world, you are watching a lot of people, uh, make the transition from life to death. You are in the book, I could talk about it's almost like you're on a bridge, if you will, and people are crossing all the time and you as the surgeon are there trying to grab a few and yank them back, but you're there in that transition, you know, day after day after day. And I thought, well, you know, if there, if there ever really could be or would be or is a ghost or a paranormal world, and they wanted to touch or reach or communicate with with the living side. uh, Maybe one of the first people they would see is a brain surgeon, And, uh, and therefore in the book, this is the story of a brain surgeon where we take him through kind of his regular days. He's already feeling stressed out and overworked and overtired, and he begins to see things that he originally thinks are hallucinations. But uh, eventually convinces himself uh, himself that they're ghosts, and that uh, he's trying to figure out why and why are they getting worse and worse and more and more terrifying.
0: That's fun. I uh, you know I always like I've been a paranormal guy since I was a kid, and I always had a big problem with ghosts. For me, it was like no ghosts, no Bigfoot, no Loch Ness monster. Like, let's let's get away from those things. And then as I got older and I started reading it more into like the paranormal and especially like different dimensions. Then you start to go, well, this, this could be, could be a deal because there's so many people who have seen things. Like I have a friend who swears to God that he has, he's had this ghost living in the house across the street from him. And to the point where he was like taking pictures and being like, look, there's, you know, you can see the, the drapes doing this. And like, he was freaked out to the point where he had to move. Because he was like, this woman just watches me all night, every night. And he was kind of into drugs at the time. So I can imagine that that would be pretty creepy, like whether there was somebody watching him or not because he was on drugs at the time. Like it's, it's very creepy. Um, how did you get into the like interested in the paranormal? Was it just like this would be an interesting plot for a book or is this something that you've been interested in for a long time?
1: Yeah, I think it, it was resurrecting uh, my childhood interests. Uh, my uh, my mother and my grandmother, uh, who lived in the house with us, um, were both Scottish. And uh, I may be offensive to the British, but it just seems like they are much more attuned to the idea of a paranormal world uh, and of ghosts and spirits and all that sort of thing. So anyway, my both my mother and grandmother grandmother were firm believers and both had had their own experiences with uh ghosts uh at least uh in their belief and so my I mean my childhood was filled with, with tales of ghosts and of course therefore I read all the books about it at the time and you know as many scary stories as I could and and all that and I've always enjoyed Scary novels and scary movies as well, uh, particularly ghost movies for one reason or the other. So I think it was easy to uh, get into that, even though I can't say I've had anything that I would call a paranormal experience.
0: Yeah, I haven't either, you know, it, which bugs me because I, I want to see. <laughs> I would you like. know what I mean? Yeah, like <laughs> it bothers me. I sit out in my hot tub every night and like I had a hot tub at my parents' house when I grew up and we had great stars in Northern California. And like I, I've spent... Hundreds, if not thousands, of hours sitting in a hot tub, and sometimes I just uh, I I go up there and I stare at the scars, and I'm like, "Come on, man, just give me something, (laughs) give me a light, give me a, a, a something buzzing, like a noise, anything, like just give me something." And you know, I've had I've had other people on here who have had you know their own personal experiences, and everybody has a different you know way of. Like, this is how you do it. You know, like Chris Bledsoe, he says, this: it's UFOs, God, spirits. It's all the same thing. You have to open yourself up to them for them to show themselves to you. And once you're open to them, then they will. I've heard other guys who are like, hey, if you see some light buzzing around in the sky, you run because – we don't know who those things are, and and if, especially if it's the government. And I, I, I tend <laughs> to think the government has some really crazy stuff. They go, the government doesn't want you seeing these things. If if they're if they're out buzzing around in these things, they don't want to be seen. And if they see you seeing them, like you need to go quick. <laughs> so it, it it's a it's an interesting thing, the paranormal. It it requires a lot of faith, I guess, from my perspective.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting realm to think about and discuss. I think I, I, um, I probably would. Well, the, the term I've heard be- used before, which I really like, is I'm an optimistic agnostic meaning I have no idea I have yeah. no idea if any of this stuff is real uh, you know I you can extend this easily into spirituality and religion as mm-hmm. well um, and and I I just don't know and I kind of gave up trying to prove it to myself one way or the other so I just leave an open mind but I kind of I hope some of this stuff is real. Like, I kind of hope I have a soul, you know? Yeah, I me too.
0: Hope, <laughs> Very yeah, much. And, I, <laughs>
1: and if I can, I mean, if there is a soul, I mean, why would there not be the, uh, you know, the, the the possibility of these souls being somehow around or uh, realizable one way or the other? So, yeah, I mean, I I would love it if I saw a ghost. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully a friendly one, but, yeah. uh, you know, I would love it. That'd be great. Um uh, but if not, if you know, I'm not going to discount it. I don't think we can prove the non-existence of something. Uh, it, it is kind of interesting. My, you know, my world is very, very much a scientific world, and the neuroscientists particularly can get pretty vehement about this. I oh, know nothing. You know, none of this exists beyond what we experience. It, it, it's all just your brain creating a bunch of, you know, a bunch of crap. And I'm like, hi, I, you know, that's that's awful strong language. It's putting our faith in in something that we can't prove, which is all we do when we're religious. We put our faith into something we can't prove. So I, I don't know. I just try to keep a far more open mind on it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I like the optimistic, but agnostic, like I I haven't seen any. I God, I want to see something. But, you know, yeah. we know so little about like. The universe and the planet we live on and ourselves, like, like I said, we, we know so little about the brain and what you were saying earlier, like the brain, when you put a chip in there, it seems to just kind of go, Oh yeah, I I know what this is and I know what to do with it. That's a weird thing. Like that's a weird thing. It is right. Like it's so weird that like the brain just knows what to do with this thing. And how do you explain that? Maybe it's biology. Maybe it's something more. Maybe it's something more that's saying, "Hey, look, these things are going to take you to the next level. They're going to let you communicate with each other better. They're going to expand your knowledge. They'll expand your vision, your hearing, like everything. All your senses are going to are opening up, and and maybe you'll you know have this conscious experience with something that's greater than yourself. It's it's so hard for me to discount people who think that way and just go, ah, it's just biology." because man there there's so many unexplainable things in our world right
1: yeah it's it's such to me it's just kind of closing down in your mind and i you know again out of the science world I, science isn't around to to shut things down science is around to try to understand things better uh and you know we're supposed to have what we call scientific skepticism that is if you're asserting something well it would be nice to see evidence that supports it but we're always revising what what we know by always challenging what we know so the minute we we get black and white and say oh no no can't exist can't be i think we're going against you know our scientific roots there and it's funny i i, I talk about i i'm no I, i'm no astrophysics expert so you know maybe it's just my na- naivete but i've I've read some articles by astrophysicists, you know, these theoretical astrophysicists, and they start talking about, you know, alternate universes yeah. uh, that are possibilities, you know, or are, are still, you know, within their mathematical realms, possibilities. And I read one article about there are an infinite number of universes and they all differ from one, uh, one another simply by one subatomic particle or yeah. something. I, I don't know. It's so and I'm weird. reading this. Yeah, I'm reading this, and I'm saying, wait a minute, this is this is as much faith in something we're never going to prove as anything else.
0: Yeah, and like if you have multiple dimensions stacked on each other, and we're just sandwiched in between dimensions that we can't see or comprehend, and there is somewhere after, after. You might be in one of those layers and maybe sometimes we get a a tiny glimpse into one of those layers and you get this shimmery or dark or whatever figure that is just you from somewhere else or you on a different timeline. You know, if, if these timelines branch with the, you know, a spin of an atom or a spin of an electron causes them to branch in different ways, they might be stacked on top of each other and you could be seeing just you. That branched off, you know, fractions and fractions of a second ago, and these dimensions haven't split quite enough, you know, for things to branch. There's so many possibilities. And this is something that I don't know how you'll feel about this, but I think science took a a very downward turn when the government got into science in World War II with the Manhattan experiment, you know, Manhattan Project. Since then, like, a lot of our major scientific discoveries or scientific institutions are now tied to government grants and you know college grants. And now you, you you get this whole system where student loan prices keep going up and and the government keeps putting out student loans. and now these colleges have to, you know, justify their existence by to get these big, huge grants and it, it's this massive system where, discovery is no longer the key aspect to science, it's the money.
1: I think that is a very valid critique I if you um, I teach undergrads and med students and uh, one of the things I do talk about uh, is how we have to call into question all the uh, investigative work that you know we base all our suppositions on So, um, I talk about it. in my own field in neurosurgery. Once you once you're out of training, so we do this what are called residencies, which are seven years after seven years of training after medical school to become a, a neurosurgeon. But once you're out of there, pretty much all your learning is going to be done by reading the the uh, professional journals and maybe going to uh, conferences and stuff like that, where all this scientific research is. Uh, being presented, but what we what we find is a lot of the scientific research is is questionable and this isn't just in my field, but it's you know, across all sorts of academic production just just as you're pointing out. Um, but that's that's the academic world. You have to produce. you have to uh, produce academic, papers and results, and so there's a lot of pressure to have positive results. In fact, you don't even get published. Your your papers won't get published if you say, oh, no, there's no effect of this medicine or no yeah. correlation between these two things. You also have to show a positive effect or positive correlation, and if they're not there, they don't even get published. If they don't get published, you won't get your grant, and as you say, it all flows because uh it's it's for the sake of these these bi- big government outlays.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a scary deal because then also you get the government going, "Hey, look, here we've got this big mo- this big chunk of money. We'd like you to take a look into this." You know, and whatever this is could be very scary, it could be very destructive, very evil a lot of the times, you know. I would imagine that a, a good portion of the scientists creating our modern day weapons probably think they're just disgusting. But again, like you've got this system where you have to produce. And if you want to get money for this school or this grant, like, well, we're going to have to do a DARPA contract. And this DARPA contract is some, you know, swarm robotics system that can, you know, we can just send it over to the Middle East and it'll take off and, I've seen these things where they've got, like, these drones now where they can decide, oh, that's a combative, that's a non-combative, and they just bang, slam into them with a shotgun shell, essentially, and it's like, at some point, the person who created that, all they wanted to do was fly a drone, all they wanted to do was make a cool drone, But instead of like just making a cool drone for the sake of making a cool drone, it's like we're going to make a cool drone and strap a shotgun shell to it and a computer that can decide whether you live or die. And I can't imagine that that guy or girl is very happy with what they've ended up creating just because they liked working on drones, you know?
1: Yeah, it's a, but it's, it's such a, uh, it's, it's such a slippery topic, isn't it? Yeah. and I don't even know, because, like I, you
0: got to pay your bills. You got in, you, you know, I put all my time and energy and, you know, education into studying drones and how to make these quadcopters better. And, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm not a weapons expert, but again, like if I want to have this job and have my life and do this for a living, I got to play ball.
1: Yeah. But I, I, I'm going to even cut the government some slack on oh. it in, in that, you know, It's just like we were talking before with the AI and the interfaces and all that. Once the technology is there, the genie's out of the bottle. And just because one side is being beneficent about it, that doesn't mean everybody's going to be. So, you know, you look at Russia and Ukraine right now, um, you know, the, the Russians were going at them with a whole bunch of drones. They weren't American drones. I think a lot of them. Iranian, know, come out of Turkey and Iran. Yeah. um, And uh and, and so how do you say, oh, no, we're we're going to hold off on all this technology that can be used for warfare because it's going to come. It's going to come sure. in, and probably fall in, into even worse hands. What what I would hope in the end is that we figure out a way to make, you know, uh, our our government have the best intentions uh see we're uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. we're a little
0: we're a little I'm an anarchist, so I, I don't cut the government <laughs> slack for anything except for fixing the potholes in front of my street. I'll cut them some slack <laughs> on that. but aside from that i I hope that you know we can make cool drones just for the sake of making cool drones and then it's going to be up to them and their scientists and the army scientists That would be my hope for them but you know it's not gonna happen
1: <laughs> so it's here's one. Com- what- yeah, the world is complex. That's, it is, uh, that's yeah, absolutely. I I, I,
0: I I don't live in Ankapistan. I understand that like the world is a complex place and things happen, but I uh, I do have a problem with with you know how many kids in the Middle East are walking around looking like me for no reason whatsoever, other than the fact that they had a bad dad or a, you know what was I think that was what George well he had, or Obama said well he had the wrong father. Like, well, you know, and, and I have the best medical equipment and the best medical, you know, I go to the Mayo Clinic for my, for my prosthetics and everything like best of the best. I had the best, when I got my hand surgeon, it was like, I looked up best hand surgeons in America and I sent emails out to the top five and, you know, but kids in the Middle East, they have nothing, you know, they, they, they don't get prosthetics. They don't get anything. So that, that bothers me. Um, but you know it is what it is. I I can scream about it all I want and they're going to just keep on doing what they're doing until they run out of money. So, that's my that's my real hope is that they just run out of money and they can't do this anymore. Uh Here's one for you. So, do you feel like understanding the brain helps you to understand people better? Like when I listen to Jordan Peterson, he, you know, obviously he's a psychologist, completely different than what you do, but I feel like when he's talking to people about Different things like I, I he did a great interview with a guy named Michael Malice the other day who's an anarchist like myself and they were kind of just parsing out like anarchism like he was kind of just going through his thought process and and kind of like yeah, this is what I think and they're going through it and, and you can see that he uses his background in psychology to kind of frame the way he's thinking about these things. Do you feel like you kind of had that same capability where like, I know kind of how this thing works. So it'll kind of give me an idea of what people are going to do.
1: Yes. And no, I wouldn't call myself a mind reader by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I, I do think it gives me a much better feel for why people Um, behave the way they do, maybe even why people uh, think the way they do on certain levels and ways that, you know, ways that sometimes we get our our minds into trouble and ways that we can help ourselves. So I've spent a lot of time, for example, um, working on uh, burnout and healthcare professionals and on psychological distress and healthcare professionals um, and, you know, there are things that we can do to help ourselves in those situations. And it really, it it eventually uh, comes down to neuroscience. So so where I'm going with that is um, I often talk about how a lot of people perceive the brain just like a computer. It's just like a computer, you know, in the factory, you get a bunch of wires put together. They're all soldered together and they communicate with one another and somehow that gives you what a computer gives you, mm-hmm. um, and you know you you load a lot of programs into it, but you're always kind of stuck with that that hardwiring of your computer, uh, and then you know if it's not sufficient, then you just go buy a new one, um, then you know the next level up, but. And and a lot of people I think see the brain as being something similar, a bunch of wires connected, which is true, and they're they're put together in the factory, which is true. But the difference is that that wiring is changing all the time. So instead of this very fixed wiring diagram, you could not possibly make the wiring diagram for your brain or my brain because it's changing as we talk. We there are there are there are big picture connections and and pathways and stuff, which are pretty hardwired. But when you drill down to individual nerve cells and their communication with other nerve cells, that is constantly in flux. And it's dependent on what our experiences are, what our environments are, what we've been through, what we're going through, the people we meet, the people, the information that's coming into us, what we're thinking about, all this stuff is changing how we're connected up inside. And so various areas of the brain, certainly as you get down to more microsystems in the brain, they can be strengthened or they can be weakened through our experiences. Interesting. So yeah, and I, I think, A, it's fascinating. I mean, it's just Fascinating, and this you know goes back to the chips. This is one way how we're probably able to connect up with the chips and and get them to do what we want them to do, but but B, I I, I think there should be a level of optimism uh, that goes along with it because a lot of things are not fixed. We are not the same person forever for the rest of our lives. We can actually alter who we are by what we are putting in there, what we're experiencing and all. So, you know, in in my world, in the practical sense of of burnout, we have multiple different strategies that we use for people to practice over and over again to help kind of channel more positive links in the brain and more reward systems and to just feel better. Uh, but it can go the other way as well. And we see this in our political landscape where, where we, you know, we, we maybe decide we, we affix to a certain set of political beliefs. Anarchism. And then all, <laughs> maybe anarchism, <laughs> um, uh, maybe strict militarism, you know, who knows. But, but, but what, then what we do is we just channel that information over and over and over again into our heads that's what Twitter is that's what you know a whole bunch of our social media is is we get into these echo chambers and we just pour the same information into our heads over and over again and that just strengthens our 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 beliefs no matter what it is so I I think it can go in either direction like everything else we've been talking about interesting uh, but it is really important I think, To not see our brains as being a fixed system of fixed wiring, because then it strips us of a lot of opportunity for empathy, a lot of opportunity for humanity, a lot of opportunity to improve ourselves and those around us, just like you're talking about, you know, I mean, we, could we think of the Middle East in a different way? Could we rechannel the way we, we, you know, we approach these things? Possibly.
0: Wow. That's interesting. So. Man, I've got a bunch of questions still so and we're running out of time. All right. Um let's go to this one. So I I've uh, like again like I'm interested in in transhumanism and sci-fi and all these things. Something that I've I've gone out on a limb on cuz I don't know much about this stuff not not like compared to what you know. I've said that I believe that human upload is impossible. So what I mean by that is I think it is possible that someday that we'll be able to create like a facsimile of ourselves and maybe put it into a into a robot or an Android. But I don't think it's possible to take my consciousness and migrate it from my body to a robot without there being some sort of break. Like, I can see copies working, but I don't see our our physical consciousness, or maybe it's not physical, whatever our consciousness is, migrating to a robot and, like, being me in a robotic body without some sort of break in between. What do you think about that?
1: Uh it's always great to opine on something i have zero ah, uh yes. knowledge of <laughs> but uh, you know i've read some of this stuff uh as well too you know in my current state of being i can't see it possible uh it, it but it gets back to that dualism that we were talking about before yeah. i would love to believe and i have for a somebody soul. like
0: me like <laughs> monism and dualism it's it's a so it's a strange thing because like how does my brain not still understand the fa- Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I got
1: I, I gotcha, and and I, you know, so I don't see it. I think we can really, I I would imagine that at some point we will get better and better at approximating how our brains work, and will you know, will we create systems that then believe their They have their own souls. I don't know. You know. Well, like
0: I guess too. It's like can the soul migrate from wherever it is now into a machine without there being some sort of break in between? And I just don't see how it's possible. Like you were saying with how the brain changes itself. Like, all the time. It's like, how do you make a machine that is constantly changing all the time? Like, mechanical parts just don't do that. Like, the only way I can see it being possible, um, and I've, I've heard other people make this. This is not my idea. But essentially, it would be that you would replace your brain slowly with mechanical parts over time. And then the second after you die, you would put that last part in and then fire up. And that's kind of like the only way I could see it being... But remotely that, possible. You know, but then again, like, what happens to the soul when it dies? Does it? You know, it's it's all very sketchy territory.
1: And I I would argue even with that, uh, you know, again, we're really str- striding into the science very world. far into the future. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, even there, to me, it just becomes a facsimile, yeah. rather than a you. And and again, I you probably can reproduce a lot of what goes on uh, in the brain and maybe even the changing dynamics of what goes on in the brain, but it's still a different system. It's you know, the brain is an electronic system in some ways. I mean, it, it depends on charges and the changing of of potentials within individual cells. But man, there is uh, you know, it, it, it's still a, a something vastly different from transistors and capacitors yeah. and that sort of thing. And, and so I think it's a, I think it's a huge
0: stretch. Yeah. <laughs> and like I'm a, i am I was a lineman. So like difference in potential, I get that. Like to imagine going, like having a difference in potential between cells is insane. So like as a lineman, when you go and work on transmission lines, you go up in a helicopter, you take a, a, a wand in your hand and you touch the wire. And at that point, you're equalizing the potential between you and the wire. And now you can go out and walk on that. But it's like, how would you do that between cell to cell just and how many like over billions of times per second per minute? It seems like something that is so far out into the future or into the realm of science fiction that it's it's crazy. But like. There are people out. You could go and find them on Twitter right now who think that they're going to live forever through this method uh, today. And you know, I don't know. Maybe like life extension drugs will get better, and and they can make it a couple hundred years to where something like this maybe is possible. I just don't see it. I I, I think, like you said, it's it's a pretty far stretch.
1: Yeah, I, I you know I would rather pour that energy. And that effort into making everybody else's life more bearable here on Earth, you know, and rather than uh, all that all that money and energy and effort into uh, extending me forever, that's pretty narcissistic.
0: <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of people out there who don't think the way that we do. You know, there there's politicians are are coming straight to mind who are like, hey. I, I'm better at this job than anybody ever has been. And these these lower generations are idiots. They don't want to leave their homes. They, you know, I, I, I've, got a, I've got a 15-year-old nephew right now that we took him go-kart to the go-kart track a couple weeks ago, and he got terrified and had to get out. He's supposed to get his driver's license next month. So I can see a politician being like, yeah, we're not leaving the fate of our country to these people. Like, I'm going to stay here forever. So – I I can see them, you know, I uh, I
1: can buy that one. There's
0: some dirty people out there. That's for dang sure.
1: (laughs) Gets back to that genie in the bottle thing. Even if we got everybody behaving in the United States, it ain't going to happen everywhere else.
0: That's that's exactly true. Right on, Gary. It was a pleasure talking with you. Let's let's end it here. I've got another podcast coming up in five minutes. So we're out. Take it easy. Thanks again. Good night, everybody.